Amen. All right. The title of today's message is we're in Philippians 2, as Stacy as just read for us. If you hadn't had to have your Bible open there, it's a good opportunity to do that. Title of today's message is Get an Attitude. So wave at somebody, look somebody around you, tell them, get an attitude. That's right. You can't touch them anymore and tell them that. Get an attitude. Typically, we say change your attitude or adjust your attitude, right? You've heard that statement before. I'm telling you to get an attitude today. The question is, what kind of attitude, right? Uh, What kind of attitude should you and I have? Get an attitude. Well, we're going to find out in Philippians chapter 2, as Paul tells us about this indestructible joy that we have in Christ, that, that how our attitude and having the right attitude impacts our joy. And so I don't know if you're familiar with this movie. It came out in the 70s. The movie is called The Poseidon Adventure. They actually remade it in 2006. I think it was just then called Poseidon. It was a little different storyline, but the overall story was the same. It was based upon a book written in the late 60s uh, about a cruise ship. Uh, no, not a cruise ship that was infected with COVID and had to you know, extend someone's vacation for three months. A cruise ship that uh, was hit by a 90-foot wave. 90-foot wave um, uh, from the tsunami just caught them off guard. They were just out there. I believe it was New Year's Eve. They were celebrating, counting down New Year's Eve. Five, four, you know, yeah. And then just shortly after that, this 90-foot wave comes and basically just treats this humongous cruise ship like a toy and just picks that sucker up and doesn't break it. No, it doesn't break it. But what it does to that cruise ship is it flips it completely upside down. So that the bottom is now on the top and the top is now on the bottom. And the ship is still floating, but it's upside down. And so the people, of course, are all disoriented and they're trying to figure out where to go and all this sort of stuff. And one of the main characters played by Gene Hackman, looking young back in the 70s. And uh, Gene Hackman uh, is, I believe, a priest. And and he uh, realizes that the ship is upside down. And he says, look, uh, and he starts to gather this group of followers. He said, guys, if we want to... If, if, if we want to live, if, if you want to be rescued, if you want to be saved, the way up is actually down. We actually have to go down to the bottom levels of the ship. But everyone's so disoriented. They're having a hard time. They're like, wait, I, my brain can't figure this out. We're going down. How is that helping us? And just something about the visual and all that sort of stuff, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And so this group of about eight people are kind of ridiculed and, and made fun of. In fact, at one sort of pivotal uh, part in the movie, uh, there is a larger group of, of survivors uh, led by the ship's doctor, and they run into each other, and the ship's doctor says, which way are you guys going? Oh, they say, no, we're going this way, we're going down. And they're like, no, we have to go up. And, the, and they just give them a hard time. And, and they say, look, man, you guys are nuts. You guys are crazy. The, the, the way up is not down. That doesn't make any sense. And they were so disoriented by having the ship turned and, and their visual, spatial things just kind of messed up. They couldn't understanding, couldn't perceive that it's thought the way we needed to go was up. You don't go down. Well, to make the movie and, and not to ruin it in case anybody wants to go uh, find it online. You can't go to a blockbuster or anything like that and find that bad boy anymore. And, um, but in case you want to watch it, um, they, they, a few of them, I should say, make it to safety out of that group led by Gene Hackman. And, um, and, and, and the moral of the whole movie um, is, is the way up is really down. Now, I don't know if you know what has happened to our world. Our, our world has been hit by a tsunami tidal wave of sin, and it has flipped our world 
upside down. And our compass, our orientation doesn't work correctly. And we tend to think with our sinful minds, our sinful hearts, our sinful attitudes, that the, way, uh, that the ways we are supposed to do things um, are what's right. And Jesus, though, has come to reorient the world. Last year, we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, working through the book of Matthew. And, uh, and our whole sort of phrase for that series is, Jesus didn't come to turn the world upside down. Jesus came to turn the world right side up, right? Right side up. And so, but what he teaches us, because we're still living here and we don't understand it, what he teaches us is the way up is truly down. The way to greatness, according to Jesus, is to be a servant of the most. Whereas our world says, no, you're, you're great when you have more power or these sorts of things, or you have more fame or notoriety. And Jesus says, no. And Jesus says things like, the way to gain your life is to lose it and give it away. And so the attitude we need to have is the attitude of Christ. There was a pastor named Bill Hybels. He wrote a book. And uh, in this book, I just want to share you this quote because I think he really uh, succinctly puts it. He says, And the vocabulary of our world, down, is a word reserved for losers and cowards, for the bear market. It is a word to be avoided and ignored. It is a word that negatively colors whatever it touches. We say, he's down and out. They had a downfall. We had to downsize. Or she is downhearted. Or worst of all, they are down under. That might be offensive to Australians and New Zealanders, but he says on on the opposite side, down's antonym or opposite is up. A word in our high-voltage society that has come to be cherished and worshipped. A word reserved to describe the winners and the heroes. Unlike the word down, up positively colors whatever it touches. We say things like upscale. Ooh, look at this place. It's so upscale. Oh, she or he is upcoming. They're up and coming, up and coming new employee, up and coming new artist, up and coming new actor. Oh, they are upper class. You know, uh, this person is upwardly mobile. We believe that ascending to fame, says Hybels, money, power, comfort, pleasure in our society, up is clearly the direction of greatness. From the world's perspective, it is the only way to go. Just as a compass needles point north, the human heart seems to point up. But again, we would argue that Jesus has come to reorient our internal compass to teach us that the way up is really down through service, through humility. And so that's what we're going to see here, this attitude that Christ has in the book of Philippians, the attitude of a humble servant, the attitude of others first. And so Paul, again, is writing to the church at Philippi. This was the first church planted in Europe, and he's writing to this church here a thank you letter. Uh, But he's also challenged them because there is We find in a few of the chapters, again, they're just four short chapters. You can read this book throughout the week. I would highly encourage you to do that. Um, But but what he he writes to them uh, mostly is good. A lot of times when you read Paul's letters, he's challenging the church, right? Um, But uh, this time he's encouraging the church. This is one of the few instances where he has to sort of correct them because there are some folks in the church that are arguing. Now, I know all of you all have been in church and you've never seen an argument in church, have you? Never experienced any human beings argue in church. Well, 
Paul has to help this church deal with some folks there. Again, it doesn't seem to be a, a big issue because he just devotes a few lines to it. But he tells us what our attitude should be. The first attitude uh, that uh, we are to have, number one, is this, that we are to have the attitude of a servant. The attitude of a servant. And how many of you know that great joy comes from serving others? In fact, I would say to you, if, if you're in the situation where you're feeling not so joyful, maybe it's because your serve game, your serve game is pretty poor. Not your tennis serve game, folks. Not your ping pong serve or your racquetball or volleyball serve. Your serving of others in your family, uh, in your neighborhood, at your work is in a bad place because true servants, boy, they experience an indescribable joy. When you go out and buy these Christmas gifts, you participate in the Christmas giveaway, you do the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, there is something that fills your heart with joy when you are serving others. When you go the extra mile to help somebody, when you serve and join a serve team here. Um, and if we have to go back online and we create different ways to serve in our community like we did before, whether that's mass giveaways or serving restaurants or um, you know frontline workers or, or just being a blessing to people in our neighborhood, there is a joy that fills your heart. And so maybe if you're lacking joy, maybe it's because you're not serving anybody and life is really all about you. And when life is all about you, your joy will be all messed up. Because listen, this world is going to mess with you. <laughs> and, and, and the plans you have are going to get messed up. And so life, if you're the center of life, your joy will be severely lacking. But if you make yourself a servant, oh man, that's going to be huge. And so Paul is framing this. The attitude we need to have is that of a servant. Do you have that attitude? Look at the first couple of verses there. Look what he says here. Verse 1, he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, first of all, before we move on to the next verse, let's just hang there. First of all, how Paul is going to frame this is not so much that we uh, have to knuckle up and by our willpower force our attitude to change. No, no, no. Paul does this from a gospel-centered, a Christ-centered framework. He says, Hey, before you get trying to have and change your own attitude, first, watch me now, look to Christ. First, realize what Christ has done for you. That is the starting point. Christianity is not a religion of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is Christ has pulled us up with his bootstraps and now given us the power and the ability to do these things. It is not I will myself to do these things. It is Christ in me is the power. So he says, look first at Christ. So he says, Look at what Christ has done for you. And look at the words there, right, that we've underlined. If there is some encouragement, has Christ encouraged you? The answer is yes. H has Christ comforted you and given you love? The answer is yes. H have you been able to participate by the Holy Spirit in, in, in fellowship and relationship? Well, then, man, let's do that for others. Do you have affection or maybe the words there would be tenderness or compassion? And then he says, not just affection, but sympathy. He's saying, listen, these are all the attitudes. These are the things that Christ has first done for you. And now he's going to say in verse 2, you are now to go do them for others. Look at verse 2, right? He says, then complete my, what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. What mind is that? The mind of Christ. Or another translation is, complete my joy by having the same attitude. That's the attitude, right? The attitude of Christ. He says this, having the same love. What love? The same love Christ has loved you with. Show that to others. 
And he says this, right? Not just the same love, but he says being in full accord or unity, um, you know, um, and, and of one mind. And then verse three, he goes this. Do nothing. Do how many things? Nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I don't know about you. This is a verse you could memorize and apply every single day of your life. You wake up in the morning. God help me to not do anything, not not anything, not one thing from selfish ambition, my will, my desire or vain conceit is not about me today. But God, help me today to to consider others or count others as more significant than myself. Lord, help me to take a back seat. You may have heard the old acronym about how to have joy, J-O-Y, right? The old acronym is Jesus first, (laughs) others second, and yourself third, right? Jesus, others, then yourself. And when you have that mentality and you have that attitude, you will begin to increase your joy. But he's saying here, man. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And and in humility, right, count others as more significant than yourselves. This is a powerful verse. Imagine how this would change your marriage. Imagine how this would change the relationship with your children or your grandchildren or your neighbors or your coworkers. What would that look like if you every day stopped doing things from your selfish ambition and I stopped doing things from my selfish ambition and vain conceit and I started counting others' interests as more importantly than myself. Well, this is a verse that has uh, we have tried always to, to have as the heart of Plaza, even when we come into worship, because uh, we have always had such a diverse church and, and uh, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, and, and different uh, ages. And, and anytime, you know, because you know how folks can be. I know it's not you guys. You guys have never seen anything like this. But, you know, sometimes folks come into church, and they want it their way, right? They think church is Burger King, and, uh, and I should come to get what I want out of church. I want my songs. I want to sit in my seat. I want to hear my message. I I want to do it my way instead of saying, you know what, man, church is not about me. And when I gather here, man, I'm going to defer to others. Church is first and foremost about Christ. And, and, And how can I serve others? If I'm younger, how can I count older folks as more significant than me? If I'm older, how can I count younger folks as more significant? And when the whole body does that, it creates this beautiful family that is so attractive to the world uh, because people come in here and says, man, nobody in this place wants their own desire. Everybody in here wants to honor somebody else. And it creates this culture of honor, a culture of love and preference for one another, a culture of serving, because that's the attitude we are to have. Uh, Every year, um, you know, different uh, sports figures have to negotiate for their contracts. I was recently watching, I was telling some of the folks, I was watching the Michael Jordan documentary. I know I'm late to the game. It was released uh, earlier this year, and I, I missed it, but I, I'm starting to catch up now. And if you're familiar with the 90s Bulls and Michael Jordan, all those folks, uh, Scottie Pippen was the number two man, and, and quite arguably, I mean, just an amazing athlete. But one of the episodes on that uh, series there, the, uh, the Last Dance, is about Scottie Pippen and how instrumental he was to their team as the number two person, that Michael couldn't have carried the whole team without all these other uh, people playing their role. But the interesting thing to point out is that uh, Scotty actually backed off and walked away from the team um, because he had one of the lowest salaries in the NBA. 
And they said, you know, if he was on any other team, he would easily be the number one guy. And he's uh, all-star this, leading scorer here, leading assists, leading. I mean, he just by himself, he is an amazing player. But compared to Michael Jordan, he doesn't get all that. And he agreed to a contract at an earlier point and, and was one of the lowest paid athletes in the whole NBA. And they had won at that point several championships. And so Scotty was quite bent out of shape uh, for that. And you've heard you've heard of that before, whether it's baseball or football and the players, uh, you know, not getting the compensation they think they own. But someone has noted that they are not dissatisfied. They are not um, uh, dissatisfied and, and discontent with their salaries because they make more money than most of us would ever make in a lifetime. Right. The reason for their discontentment is their vain conceit. The reason for their discontentment is their selfish ambition. Because as they consider themselves, the reason they're discontent is because they're looking at the others in their field and they're saying, I don't make as much as he does. I don't make as much as they do. And that creates that. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis commented, oh, 50 or so years ago, probably before we had mega major sports stars. And C.S. Lewis said this beautiful quote. And C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, we say that people are proud of being rich. People are proud of being clever or people are proud of being good looking. But they are not. They are proud of being richer than others. They are proud of using his vocabulary, being cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became as equally as rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. You see, that pride begins to infect all of us. That selfish ambition, that vain conceit where I'm concerned about me, that's the word of vanity there. And you know what the cure for pride and selfish ambition and vain conceit is, right? Being a servant, being like Jesus. And when you put yourself in a posture and a position to serve others at your work and take uh, the, the jobs that are less you know, glorifying and all that sort of stuff, you begin to achieve a level of greatness that the earth and the world doesn't understand, but the kingdom understands it completely. Amen? So how would this change if we began to count others as more significant or important? We became that servant in our job, in our school, in our nation. If the politicians truly were out to serve the people instead of serving their own interests or serving those who had the most money. Look at verse 4. He echoes again the same statement. I love Jesus again because he repeats things for people like me that are a little slow. And here we have in verse 4, it says this. Let each of you look not only to his own, what? Interests, but also to the interests of who? Others. Man, this is the attitude that a Christian should have. This is the idea. This is the picture that we are to be navigating. Heard the story about the old preacher, uh, uh, Ironside, and, and uh, he said when he was a boy, his mom took him to a Christian business meeting, uh, men's um, meeting, and, um, and they were going over all their paperwork and their budgets and all this sort of stuff. And one of the guys got really upset, and he stood up in the middle of the meeting and banged on the table. He says, look, I don't care what the rest of you are doing here, but I just want you to know I want my rights. And there was an older gentleman in that group there, an older Christian business gentleman. He was Scottish and um, Scottish. And, um, and he said, I, what's that you say? And, um, and the younger gentleman spoke up again to, to the older. He says, look, I said, you guys figure out however you want to do it, but I want my rights. And the Scottish gentleman said, your 
your rights. That's all you want, your rights. That's what you want. We lad, if you had your rights, you'd be in hell tonight. Because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to get his rights. He came to get our wrongs. And at that, the meeting got real quiet. And that man sat down and didn't say another word. Jesus Christ didn't come to get his rights. Amen. He was God. And we're going to look through the rest of this passage in these next couple verses. He came to get our wrongs and he took all of our wrongs upon himself. And he didn't deserve that. And he shows us the attitude of a servant. And this is God Almighty. And so the, the, we could spend a whole series. You could spend a whole year in the next few verses here. This is a beautiful poem that scholars have picked apart for thousands of years that Paul has written. I don't dare have enough time to give it today, but just look at its beauty in verses 5 through 7 as it talks about the nature of Christ, what we call in theological you know, terms the Christology here. And he says in verse 5, he says this, Maybe my contacts don't work as good as my glasses. Verse 5, have this mind. What, what mind? Right? The mind of Christ. Or some translations have this attitude. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That verse right there is just phenomenal. What does that mean? That is Christ, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, the infinite God that spoke all of the world into existence. He gave up his rights. That would actually be an accurate translation of this, right? That, that phrase there did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. He was completely equal with God. Again, fully God in the Trinity. But he gave up his rights as God and he robed himself in human flesh. The infinite God with infinite power now bound by human flesh. Could you imagine that? Jesus still had to walk places, folks. He could have been like, oh my gosh, walking. I am God. I can just be wherever I need to be because I'm infinite. But no, he wrapped himself in human flesh. He humbled himself. He could have said, these Human beings, Peter and James and John, arguing about who's going to sit shotgun, arguing about who's going to be the number one in the kingdom. These guys are such thick-headed numbskulls. Why do I even bother discipling them? And then, oh, the soldiers, the spitting and the mocking. See, he laid down his rights to serve others. This is Jesus. He did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. But then look at verse 7, even though he was fully God, and he still was God in human flesh, but he laid down those rights. Verse 7, it says, but he emptied himself, or some translations say made himself nothing. He emptied himself of, of the divine power and rights by taking the form of a what? Of a servant being born in the likeness of man. This is Jesus. And again, this is where we gaze our we fix our eyes and we fix our gazes on him. This is Jesus. He became taking the form of a servant. Oh, how we need to have the attitude of a servant. Why? Because Jesus, our master, Jesus, our captain, Jesus, our leader, became a servant. Oh, my goodness. This is mind-blowing. Then verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming 
obedient. We're going to get to that here in just a second. I skipped ahead, Brother Mike, didn't I? I got so excited about verse 8. So point number one is this, have the attitude of a servant. Point number two is this, have the attitude of submission. Have the attitude of submission. Thinking about rights, and that was interesting because um, this past week was Veterans Day, and we just want to give a shout out to all of our veterans here and in our community. In fact, can we just give our veterans a round of applause? Thank you for serving, and um, so grateful for those of you currently serving, uh, those of you who have served, those of you who are family members of those who serve, because I know it is a family uh, responsibility, but you guys are, are, are this picture of Christ as well as you serve and give up your rights. But as I was talking to one of our veterans just this week, talking about this whole issue of rights and the rights that I have, and uh, he says, man, as a military person, uh, I had to give up my rights as I joined. I took an oath, and I knew there were certain things that civilians could do that I couldn't do. Why? Because I gave up my rights. And he says, how much truer of that is is that of us as Christians who have given up our rights? And so when Christians start to talk about their rights, Right. I, I hope you get a little uneasy um, and, and uh, because, yeah, if we did get our rights, if we did get what we deserved, we would get the sin that was due to us. And and listen, as we talk about this whole idea of putting the needs of others first, as we talk about this whole idea of counting others is more important as we talk about the covid and mask wearing. Uh, again, we can talk about how people feel about masks. I don't like being waterboarded either. I mean, they, they pull on my ears they fog up my glasses. I don't do it. But I count others as more significant than myself. And so that's why I do it. And any Christian should have that same attitude. Nobody loves them. That's fine. But listen, and when it comes to protecting others, that's the heart of a Christian. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of things and people feel this way. But I I just look at it this way. If there's a 1% chance that that mask will will help somebody else, I'll I'll take the discomfort to help somebody else by 1%. If there's a, a half a percentage point of chance that, that that I wouldn't hurt somebody else with, with my germs. I'll take that as a servant, right? I'll take that as being submissive because this is what God has called me to do. That's the attitude that we are to have. And so now as we talk about submission, right, this attitude of being in obedience to God, can I just say, right, that if your joy is lacking, just like we said, maybe your serve game isn't doing so well and you need to get more in a position of serving others and watch your joy increase. If your joy is is lacking uh, and some others, maybe it's because you're just quite frankly not walking with God. Maybe you're not being obedient to his will. And that will bring upon you the guilt and the shame of you were created to walk in holiness and righteousness. And you're not doing that. You you are not walking in submission to God. You're not walking in obedience to God. And so your joy is going to be quite frankly stinky. And so evaluate that in your life. If you're looking for joy, how is your serve game doing? If you're looking for joy, how is your submission and obedience to the things of Christ? Are there areas in your life that you're not obeying God and that you know God has spoken to you about and you're still walking in sin? Your joy is going to be affected by that. And so we need to take and, and remember that sometimes like, oh, my joy, I just need to do something else and make myself happy. No, your joy might be lacking because you're walking in sin. Sin begins to put upon us a weight that God never intended. And we carry that weight and we carry the sin that we that, that we need to bring to Christ and get forgiven and repent of and then walk his ways. Again, that doesn't mean perfection. But when you're striving to walk in holiness, there is a joy that comes in your heart. So look at, again, verse 8 that I was getting ready to jump into, right? 
verse 8 says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became, what's the word? Obedient, that's submission. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the perfect son of God, became obedient to his father's will, his father's desire. He could have said, you know what? Fooly with those humans. Let's just recreate the world, demolish them all, incinerate them all. And, and no, but instead he became obedient. He practiced submission to me, to the father for you and me. And so Jesus is submissive. I heard of the old story. Uh, I think it was uh, John Newton who wrote the song Amazing Grace, told the story about a hypothetical story about two angels receiving two very different commands or assignments or tasks in heaven. And he says uh, they, they received them at the same time. And he said one angel is given the task to protect and rule over the largest, most powerful nation in the world. And the other angel at the same time is given the task to uh, care for and watch over the, the, the poorest, not nation, poorest, not city, poorest, not house, but just the poorest little alleyway in the world. And he said, I don't believe those angels would have any competition. I don't believe those angels would have any issue with those commands. They would both do it with the same amount of joy. And the people said, well, why, why do you think that? And he says, because it wasn't the task that was important. It was being obedient to their master. And there is an obedience, joy connection that when you walk and you know God has called me to do this, right? Have you met people that are doing something? You're like, ooh, I don't know how you can do that. And they're like, God called me to do this. And they are filled with a level of joy because they know they have the pleasure of the Father at their back, right? They know they have the approval of God at their back. And so the world looks at them like they're nuts. But they're doing this because they are being obedient to their Father. They have the attitude of submission. And so he humbled himself and he became obedient. So we need to have the attitude of submission. Thirdly, and finally is this, we need to have the attitude of sacrifice, the attitude of sacrifice. Joy comes from being a servant. And listen, sometimes being a servant can, can be really enjoyable. And listen, even being submissive can be enjoyable. But I just need to let you know, as we preached last week, that sometimes joy is very costly. It costs you a lot. It doesn't necessarily feel good to be downwardly mobile. The way up is really down. Sacrifice by its very nature is hard. Sacrifice requires giving something up. And yet Jesus has sacrificed for us. Again, look at verse 8. Notice what is said there. Therefore, right, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to what? To the point of death. But not just any death, death on a cross. Sacrifice, none of those things was pleasant. Jesus' job to come to earth wasn't just be born and be a good teacher and go around and heal people and wash some feet be obedient and be a servant. No, he really came, ladies and gentlemen, to die. As we prepare to get almost ready, and I don't want to get you know past ahead of Thanksgiving. I know our world is clamoring, right, because they're so stressed out, and it's okay if you already decorated for Christmas. You know, I know people are just looking for some joy to have, right? You know, amen. Because it's been a hard year. We're all looking for some, looking forward to something. And um, but listen, as we think about Christmas, you know, and, and and Christmas is so beautiful, and we focus on the Christ child, but we always have to remember that. The Christ child came for a purpose. He came to sacrifice his life. 
He became obedient to the point of death. That was a sacrifice. That wasn't easy for Jesus. But not just any death. And, and what Paul notes here by death on a cross, he's saying, listen, folks, reminder, it wasn't just a human death. While that is extraordinarily in a death on the cross, extremely painful. It was death on a cross. And that's the reminder that he faced the full wrath of God. The full bent of God's good and just wrath and punishment for all sins. Every murder, every uh, uh, foul word, every uh, robbery at gunpoint, every rape, every racist, vicious, dripping comment. I mean, every abuse in the world dumped on Jesus. That's a sacrifice that the pure and perfect spotless lamb not only walked among us, but he was fully dipped in the disgusting sin. I hate to use such a graphic illustration, but uh, my brother Mike Salmon's back there. We were talking in our uh, online group this week, and he was talking about a, 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 a very horrific war story that he was watching a documentary, um, and, uh, and it happened uh, in Germany. And I forget the name of the place. Brother Mike, you probably could remind me of it. But um, uh, as there was this bombing, the people were ducking for cover. And he said it was just awful. And, um, and man, they went to a bomb shelter. Is that right? It was a bomb shelter. And, um, and, um, and, and they ran to this bomb shelter. I'm here to tell you that even though these folks ran to the bomb shelter, later on when they checked that bomb shelter, there was nothing left. There were no people in there. There were bones and liquid inside of a bomb shelter. I hate to be so graphic with you this morning, but that to me is an exact picture of the viciousness and the nastiness of the depravity of man and the sin that exists in you and me. And, and, and we love to protect ourselves from it in the comfort of our nice homes and our society and, and, and keep away from anything ugly. But I'm just here to tell you, this is what sin does to every single human being. It will obliterate us, not just in, in, in this lifetime, but for eternity. And it'll make what happened in that war look like child's play because sin and Satan are not playing any games and it is deadly to play with. But Jesus took upon himself the wretchedness of all the foul deeds of mankind upon himself. That's a sacrifice, ladies and gentlemen. I heard the story about um, Bob Pierce who founded World Vision. You may have heard of World Vision. It's a Christian humanitarian humanitarian organization. They sponsor children, uh, kind of like Compassion International. Um, uh, Bob Pierce also, by the way, went on to found Samaritan's Purse, which is now run by Franklin Graham. And we know that for the shoebox ministry and all the hurricane and disaster relief and COVID relief they have been doing. Uh, great work there um, that they do. He founded both of those organizations. And um, uh, when Bob Pierce was in his latter years, he was diagnosed with leukemia and he was struggling to battle that. But he was still out on the field visiting people, making sure that the poor of the world were being taken care of. And as he came to this one lady, he saw she was dying uh, also of cancer. And she, they had taken her out of the, the, the little medical tent area that they had had, and they had set her by the river. And he got a translator. He says, why is this lady by the river? And he's like, man, she, she just can't get any peace. You know, she's in pain. She's having trouble sleeping. And, you know, just being by the river just calms her. And so he talked to her and, you know, they shared Christ with her. And, and uh, she was already a believer because of the ministry that was going on in that area. But she was just in agony and in pain and just felt like she had to be by the river. Just it was the only thing that sort of calmed her. And, and as he talked and learned that she couldn't get any sleep, he himself had been given uh, some sleeping pills and, um, by his doctor. And he said, man, you know what? 
I just feel like I need to give this lady these sleeping pills. So he talked with the medical professionals there. He said, man, these are okay for her to take. Yeah, they're, they're good, man. I want to give her the rest of my prescription. Now, he still had the rest of his tour to go, still had the rest of his time to, to negate with, but that became a sacrifice because as he himself was struggling with leukemia, that would affect his sleep. But he said, man, this lady needs it more than I do. That's a sacrifice. You may be familiar as we talk about Veterans Day and uh, are recognizing them uh, with the story of the, the SS Dorchester and the four chaplains. Uh, it happened in World War II as this boat, the Dorchester, was converted from a regular uh, civilian ship to uh, a military ship. And they were going across the icy Atlantic. And uh, there were 900 sailors on that ship and four chaplains. And, um, and as they were heading across the Atlantic, uh, the German U-boats were there taking and trying to pick apart our military. And this SS Dorchester was struck by one of the German torpedoes, ripped right through the hull and uh, was basically sinking the whole ship. And the sailors were running around frantic and the chaplains were trying to help folks. And, um, and one of the sailors came up frantic to the chaplain. He said, chap, chap, I lost my flotation device. What am I going to do? The, the boats are overfilled and I don't have a flotation device. And that chaplain knew in that instant he had a decision to make. And as a man of God, knowing his calling, knowing where he would spend eternity, he took off his flotation device and he gave it to that sailor. Well, his other chaplains, the remaining three chaplains, also saw his act of bravery and sacrifice. And they then took off their life jackets and, and sacrificed their lives so the remaining men who were running out of uh, life jackets and supplies could get on the boats or at least float in the water. And those four chaplains died on that ship. The rest of the men remember them, though, holding hands, singing and praying as the ship went down. That's the picture of sacrifice. Amen. But can I just tell you the stories of Bob Pierce sacrificing his sleeping medicine and the, sto the story of bravery of these chaplains just really pale in comparison to the picture of Jesus Christ, right? Who made an infinitely greater sacrifice for you and me. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And look what the rest of the verses say as we close out this chapter. Verse 9 says this, therefore, therefore, look, the way up is down, right? The way up is down. Look at Jesus, servant. Look at Jesus, submissive. Look at Jesus, sacrificing. Therefore, God has highly, what does that say? Exalted him. The way up is down, folks. That's the attitude we need to have. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. And on earth and under the earth. What does that mean? That means everywhere. There's not a place where, where not, not, there is not one knee that will not bow to Jesus. Under the earth. On the earth. Above the earth. Every knee. Every demon. Satan himself. Every ruler. Every king. Every president. Every CEO and billionaire. Every boy. Every girl. Every mom. Every dad. Every grandparent will bow their knee to Jesus. And verse 11. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of who? God the Father. Amen. And so, church, what is the point of all this? The attitude you and I need to have is the attitude of Christ. Get an attitude this week. Get the attitude of a servant. Get the attitude of someone who is submitting and obedient to the Father's commands. Get an attitude of someone who sacrifices for others. That's the attitude you and I need to have. But listen, 
Not because, again, like I said before, not because we're going to will it out and we're so strong. No, we're going to get that attitude because Christ has already put it in us. Look back with me at verse 5, right? Verse 5 just simply reminds us, have this mind or have this attitude among yourselves, which is whose? Yours. You already have this attitude put in you by the Holy Spirit. What is it saying? In Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus lives inside of you. He dwells inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have this attitude in you. As he's going to say in the next chapter or in the next couple of verses, you've got to work out what he already worked in, right? And so listen, we look to Christ. We, we, we look to him. And he is the one. And the more we look at him, the more we gaze upon him, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more of a servant we will become. The more submissive we will become, the more uh, we will be able to sacrifice. And so gaze upon him. If you look at yourself, right, and you look at your surroundings, that's, that's not going to happen. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ personally through a relationship with him, this sounds way too daunting for you. That's because it is way too daunting for you. Everything in your flesh rises up against being a servant because you want to be in charge. I want to be in charge in my flesh. Everything in you rises up against being submissive. I want to be in charge. Everything rises up in you to preserve yourself. You don't want to sacrifice for anybody else. I barely want to share my English muffin with my kids this morning on the way to church. Little Liam's like, Dad, can I have a bite of that? And my family kind of knows. I start to twitch a little bit when people ask me for a bite of things, right? And, um, and, and my wife uh, just famously asked me, I'm like, babe, listen, I will get you your own plate. I'll get you your own, I will get your own tub of ice cream. But this one is mine. I just want mine. She's like, I just want a bite. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, I start to turn into the Hulk when people ask me that sort of stuff. Why? Because it affects me. Because I'm a little too comfortable putting me in charge and having it my way instead of being submissive. But if you're here without Christ, maybe you're realizing all of your working to go up really has brought you down. And maybe you're, you're realizing the way up isn't all it's cracked up to be. And now God has opened your eyes to a new way, a way down. And, and, and you could turn around and trust Christ. We'd invite you to do that this morning. How would you do that? You do that by receiving him through prayer. And again, I would just point you again to verse 7, right? This beautiful verse. That, that Christ went a long way for you. That Christ in verse 7, but he emptied himself for you, taking the form of a servant for you. This is what Christ did for you. And I just want you to know that God, God goes a long way to be united with his people. Amen. God paid a high price to be united with his people. Oh, listen, it doesn't matter, sir, ma'am. It doesn't matter. Jesus went a long way with your bad attitude and all. Jesus went a long way to be united with you. Listen. With your ups and your downs, Jesus went a long way to be united with you. Listen, you could be sinning like Satan, and it wouldn't matter because Jesus still went a long way to be united with you. You might not have prayed in years, and Jesus still went a long way to be united with you. Amen? And so we praise him for his sacrifice. He did that for you. You Would you turn your life over to him? I want to give you that opportunity now through prayer. And so let's take a moment to bow our heads. The eyes closed. Our worship team comes back to prepare to lead us to this response time, this invitation time. And if you know you haven't given your life to Christ, whether you've been in church all your life or you just walked in today. We want to give you that opportunity through prayer.
If you know God's been speaking to you, the Holy Spirit is pounding upon your heart, you might want to just say a simple prayer. You could repeat it after me. It's not magic words, but if it expresses the desire of your heart, then pray it. You might want to say something as simple as this. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I submit to you. I submit to you. God, I admit that I've sinned against you. God, I admit that I've sinned against you. And I'm sorry for my sins. God, I'm sorry for my sins. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. And that you rose again for me. And that you rose again for me. And right now, as best I know how, I give you my life. Right now, as best I know how, I give you my life. Jesus, help me to follow you all the days of my life. Jesus, help me to follow you all the days of my life. God, I'm realizing the way up is truly down. God, I'm realizing the way up is truly down. And so, God, I lay it all down to you. God, I lay it all down to you. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, we'd love for you to fill out a connection card. Let us know after service. We want to celebrate with you. Heads bowed and eyes still closed. We want to simply just help you grow. Welcome you into the family of God. That's the most extraordinary decision you could ever make. No one here is going to embarrass you. No one is going to be like, oh, that guy. Oh, that lady. Whew. Thought you were right. No, no, no. Folks around you, well, they would celebrate. They would celebrate the work that God has done. And for any Christian in here, we know the work God has done in us. When we gave our lives to him and how he loved us, how he chose us, how he went a long way to humble himself to receive us. Oh, God, how we glory in that. And Lord, I want to pray over myself and every other Christian here. I want to pray over our attitude, Jesus. We'd have the attitude of Christ. We'd have your attitude, God, of a humble servant submitting to the Father's will, ready to sacrifice our lives. God, that's not easy. I, I don't say these words lightly, Lord. I'm, I'm in need of your power in me to sacrifice God, help us to do that, Lord, day in and day out as we make disciples, Father. As we go throughout our week, Father, we just lay down our lives, God. We lay down our lives and we say, Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And Father, when we do that, we will be filled with an indestructible and indescribable joy that, that people will just uh, be asking us about. They will be amazed. So, Father, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. It's so time for us to respond, maybe through just quiet prayer, maybe through coming up here to pray at the front. If you need someone to pray with you, myself or some of our leaders here, we'd love to pray with you. We just actually wait till after the music so we can kind of hear each other without yelling and breathing all up on one another. But this is the time to stand and sing or, or again, to worship quietly. However, God's called you to respond, whatever you need to respond to him with. So if you're able and willing, I'd love to invite you to stand as we declare the goodness of God, as we declare.